0: Okay, we're looking tonight at being a God loving example. <clears throat> so we're looking, we're coming to the place where we're, we're turning a corner here in our, in our study, and we're coming to the example that we need, need to be, or what we need to be in terms of how we walk and how we look, right? <clears throat> we want to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah? We should make a difference in people's lives. You know, if we're His children and um, He dwells within us, we ought to make a difference in people's lives. Who's the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Look around you. The, the, these people are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, we don't feel very, very much like salt of the earth. We don't feel very much like anything of power. But Jesus said that we are. Right? And we are not because we're anything. We are because the, the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in us. And the thing about it is, though, that look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 5. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Right? So that gives you um, uh, a purpose of your life. right? That you're supposed to let your light, let your works, let your life so shine that people see what you're doing and don't think you're great. If they, if they think you're great, you've missed it. Right? If they think you're wonderful, what a nice person you are, you've actually missed it. What they need to see is, they need to see and to understand that your Father is great. You're to be the light of the world. You're to show the world the power of God. So we're going to be a God-loving example. Now, we've seen that we have three basic responsibilities. The first one was to restrain the flesh through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. So the flesh is to be cut off in its prime. We're not to let it go its own way and do its own thing. We are to restrain the flesh. Now, restraining means restraining. It means stopping it. Don't give it its head. Don't give it its way. Pull it back. It's not by your power. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you don't give it its head. If you're giving the flesh its head, the rest of the book's nonsense. You're never going to be a God-loving example if you're giving the flesh its head. You've got to get the flesh, and you've got to mortify it. Put it to death. Strangle it. Right? So that's the first part we looked at. Uh, second... <clears throat> Uh, Paul taught us that we are changed when our mind is illuminated and renewed by the Holy Spirit as he teaches us from God's Word. So the Word of God gets into us, and when the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God, we're changed into his image. And we begin to be changed. Now we're looking at the the final section of our book now, uh, where we're going. And we're looking at um, putting on the new man. Okay, we're going to be different. We're going to put on the new man. We're going to actually... Now, by the way, he's categorizing all this for us and putting it in nice little boxes. It's the normal reality of the Christian life. It's just nice to have it nailed down for us, the way he's doing it, all right? So we're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. One of the things that people have to see is they have to see this love relationship between us and God. What do people think of religion today? Now, oh, talk to me. It's Wednesday night. Fine? They corrupt. I think it's corrupt. They hate it. They want nothing to do with it. Except Baptists, they love Baptists, don't they? No, it's all religion to them. <clears throat> they have absolutely no interest in it. You know, the fact that you're a Baptist means nothing to them except you're another religious holy Joe, and they don't care. Right? We have doctrine that we hold dear. That's precious and wonderful and true. But you know what? They don't care out there. What we believe, they don't care. What we talk about here, they just don't care. Right, And um, we can try as hard as we like. Very hard to get them to come in here to see what's going on in the first place. It's just hard. People don't want to do that. All right, now, so um, how are they going to see the light? They're not going to see it in religion. They just think it's all the same. How are they going to see the light? Through our lives. Through our lives. We've got to be salt and light. We've got to be different out there. It's got to be real. It can't be that we're just the same. Now, when it comes down to it, it's not our doings that are the issue. You see, how many of you know somebody who's very good and very holy, but they're not saved and they don't really know God at all? That's what we all do, don't we? We all know people like that, right? Now, now you may like those people. They're nice to live around. It's much nicer to live beside somebody who's going to reach out and give you a helping hand than somebody you're afraid might murder you. You know, that's much nicer, right? We like those people. But what happens with with them is that they live their lives in such a nice, good way and we think, oh, they're wonderful people. We don't think, oh, they serve a wonderful God. Now, how would we get to the place? How would people get to the place where looking at your life, they think, he serves a wonderful God? She serves a wonderful. How would people get to that place? By our attitude, by what we say when something happens. We, we praise God and we to Him. Okay. That would be part of it. But could we do, could, could we do that and not be real? No. What about this? What about by the relationship that we manifest with Him? Okay. Now, how do you manifest relationship? How would somebody know you have a relationship with somebody? Well, um, talk about them, right? What else? Sorry? you behind on the phone a lot. Spend time with, right? You know, people, people kind of twig when you have a relationship. You know, uh, the things you do in a relationship, when you have a relationship... You get a young couple that are, that, are, that are together and they're courting, they're going out together, whatever they're doing. And you know what? Listen, it's incredible the things they will do for each other, the time they will spend for each, with each other, the things they will do, the gifts they will buy. It's incredible. It's very noticeable. You know, it's kind of annoying sometimes to, uh, when you're on the outside look at this this couple who are so devoted to each other. It's kind of, you know, it's, kind of, it's easy to get it wrong. It's easy to be bothered by it, you know. But if we have a relationship with God, don't you think it should show... Now, I don't mean us going around, you know, blabbing about how we love Jesus, because that leaves them cold. But they ought to see a relationship. They ought to see a relationship in your life that's actually <clears throat> transforming for you and it's having an impact upon them. So if we're going to be what we say we are, then there's got to be a relationship that's real. And because it's real... Gets manifested. People see it. That's got to be. That's got to be the way it is. Now, everybody's not going to go with you on it and think you're great because of it. You know, they're going. To be, uh, some people are going to mis- misrepresent it and misinterpret it and all the rest. But there has to be a relationship there that's kind of manifest. And, you know what? Let's just say you have a, a young couple who've got together, right? And all of a sudden, you hear that they're getting married. But you've you've known this guy for. For years and you've been around him over the last weeks and months and he never mentioned it to you what do you think he never mentioned her to you what do you think something fishy going on here something something's wrong he never said anything about it nobody's that shy nobody can keep it in that <clears throat> that much right now listen if you've got people in your life that don't know anything about your relationship with Jesus, there's a problem. You see, if the relationship is there, you just can't keep it quiet. It just gets out. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at where we're going tonight. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us tonight and help us, Lord. And Lord, <clears throat> we talk of relationship, and Lord, it's so easy to have words. It's so easy to have concepts and knowledge. and all, oh Lord, not the relationship. Now, Lord, you are sweet, and you are lovely, and Lord, you draw us. Blessed Spirit of the living God, would you open hearts to receive what you have for us tonight, Lord? Would you draw us into the sweetness of that relationship? Lord, may we see it as satisfying and as real. And Lord, may you be so real in our hearts and in our lives that others just know, because you're there. Bless we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Okay, knowledge objectives, what we're trying to learn. Explain how to make a difference as a servant leader in the lives of others. Right? You want to make a difference. Right? You don't want to just float along uh, and be like everybody else. You want to make a difference. You're the light, uh, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You need to make a difference. right? If you can pass through, the, uh, pass through this life and not make an, make an impact because of your Christianity, you know what, your, your, your Christianity is definitely suspect. You need to make a difference because you're a Christian, right? <clears throat> Understand how to test your real priorities in life. What's important to you? Right? <clears throat> Jesus is important to me. Okay. Do you know what? You can actually test it. You can actually look at your life and you can see what's important to you. Other people know what's important to you, by the way. Do you know that? The people that live around you know what's important to you. The people that, li- the- 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 the people that live around you are n- don't-, don't fall prey to what you say. Because they look at how you manifest it in your life. So you need to <clears throat> test your real priorities, where you really are with it all. Recognize uh, the extravagance in the life of a lover of God. Now, what does extravagance mean? Let's get our word defined here. What does extravagance mean? Spend loads of money. Spend loads of money. Okay. <laughs> well, that's definitely extravagant. But listen, uh, extravagance would be spend loads off whatever. Money, time, life. Whatever. It's just, listen, you're going to do it, and it's going to be extravagant. People are going to look at it and say, What? Like, it's not, you know, mealy mouth, doling out. It's kind of cutting loose, letting it all happen. We'll look at some examples of that in the scripture. Uh, but uh, extravagance is part of a love relationship, it just is. Okay? <clears throat> Application objectives. Respond by repenting of other loves that have taken priority over wholehearted love for God. Right? That's what happens in our lives. That's why God calls it spiritual adultery. Because what happens in our lives is other loves, other relationships actually take priority for us. And we demonstrate it in our lives. And we need to repent of those things and come back to the place where we're loving him. Uh, Respond by seeking ways to demonstrate extravagant love to God. Now, that's not us as a church. That's you as a person. Looking for ways to demonstrate your extravagant love for God. If it's there, it will show, and it will show an extravagance. And respond by asking God to make you a God-loving example so that people will see your love for God and be moved by it. All right. Okay, how to make a difference. You have to be different to make a difference. You cannot change anything by adding more of the same. Right? If you pour out your your cup of tea in the morning and it's not sweet enough, you don't pour more tea in. What do you do? Put sugar in it. You put something different to make it sweet. Uh, You can't change something by adding more of the same. If you're going to be used to change the world, then you have to be different. You have to be different. Let me read you what Jim Berg says on this point, um, <clears throat> because I am fully and absolutely persuaded uh, of this truth, and I think so often what's happening in our day and age, we're, get, we're falling prey to the idea that we can change the world by being like the world. Um, <clears throat> the principle of influence of making a difference in the lives of others is easily stated and easily understood. You have to be different... Uh, to make a difference. You cannot change anything by adding more of the same. Suppose you have in front of you a glass of unsweetened iced tea. Now, he's from the South in America where they drink their tea with ice in it, right? I know my granny would have turned over in her grave uh, if she thought of anyone drinking tea with ice in it, but that's what they do, right? Uh, But you do not like unsweetened tea. You wish, therefore, to add something to your glass of tea to change the taste. You cannot change the taste by pouring more unsweetened tea into the glass. You must add something different to the glass. To have an influence on other people, you cannot be just more of the same kind of people they are. You must be different to make a difference. That is the, this is the significance of our Lord's command that we be salt and light. A first century housewife who wished to pre- preserve a piece of meat without the benefits of refrigeration could not wrap the meat in another piece of meat to store it. She added she needed to preserve it with salt, something different from the meat itself. If a first-century man needed to walk to his neighbor's house at night in the darkness, he had to take a lamp of some kind to light his way. The darkness could only be changed by the light, something different from the dark, darkness. Likewise, this greatest spiritual impact is made upon people by somebody who is different from them. You have to be different. That means we don't assimilate ourselves into the world. We're, we're, we're taught by modern Christianity, and it is modern. It is a new thought. It is a new thinking. If you want to reach the world, you have to be like the world. It's directly in opposition to the principle of Scripture. Salt is very different. Salt causes trouble. You know, listen, salt does not not leave things unaffected. It changes things. It's different. It stings. Put it in a wound and it stings. Salt stings the world. Light shows up the darkness. Men recoil from the light because they, they want to kind of hide in the darkness. And that's what your life is supposed to do. Your life is supposed to be different. You're supposed to cut across the grain. You're supposed to go against the tide. Your life is supposed to be different. You're not going to be the same. If you're the same as, you can't change anything. And the problem is that you know, mankind is well used to doing things that, the, that they try and do for you know, uh, a few years, and at the end of it all, they realize it doesn't work. If you were to examine uh, the history of psychiatry, absolutely fascinating you know because they have all these brain waves this is the latest brainwave. this is going to work and they try it for a few years and then it doesn't work so they try something new so they'll be on their latest bent at the moment whatever it is but <clears throat> it's it's the latest bent it'll last a few years and then it'll be gone that's just the way it is right and what comes the church falls prey to that and the church is on a bend right now where they're saying right well if we're like the world we'll be able to reach the world Let's dumb church down, make it acceptable to people out there, change the music, make it nice for people, make it kind of similar to the music they're listening to out there and <clears throat> dumb it all down. You know, don't, don't preach too long, don't say too many things that might offend them and then they're going to be reached. No, they're not. You have to be different to make a difference. There is the offense of the gospel. It is an offense. You can't, you can't smooth it over and make it Nice. There's an effort. There's an effort out today to kind of, you know, to give God a makeover, make him so he's not so hard and mean as he, people used to say he was before. In fact, he's a good old fellow. and um, you know, you can kind of get him on board. And you know, he, he, he's just no, it's not like that at all. God is very different from the world, and you're his child. You're supposed to be different. You're not going for a pint for people to get them saved. You're not, you're not going to the rock concerts. You're not doing those things. You're different. Being the same as is not going to give you any power to change them at all. It's when you say, no, that's wrong, and this is right. And they look at you, and they want to stone you, which is what they did in biblical times. They didn't, by the way, they didn't want to stone them because they were so similar. They wanted to stone them because they were so different. That's where you get power to change people. That's where you get the purchase power to actually change people. You've got to do it. great example of that, by the way, is um, Elijah and Obadiah. Elijah, you know, was a hair-shirt prophet who came up and and, and told Ahab, there'll be no rain till I say. And Ahab went off, and listen, he spent three years hunting Elijah down to try and kill him. He couldn't find him because God hit him. But Ahab had in his... Household, one of his trusted servants was actually Obadiah, who was uh, <clears throat> a godly man. The difference between Obadiah and Elijah was Obadiah was a blender inner. Elijah was a stander outer, and you know who, who who won the day? Elijah did. Elijah won the day and turned the nation around. Obadiah had no impact because he wanted to be the same. You can't actually impact anything by being the same as it. We can't change the world by being the same as the world. We've got to get that in our heads. We've got to be different uh, to make a change. We've got to understand that <clears throat> there's no way for us to change the world by being like the world. Right? <clears throat> That's a pet peeve, by the way, but it's a pet peeve that I, uh, that I have uh, the deepest conviction about. Right? <clears throat> it is not just a case of Let's stay the same because we're the same. No, let's be different because being different gives us power to change things. And when God moves, and he will, it's the people who stand out as different that actually create the change. Don't be drawn into this thing of let's just be like it. All right, loving God with all your heart. What do you love and what you hate reveals what you are. Is that true? What you love... And what you hate reveals what you are. Tell me what you really love, and I'll tell you what you are. Tell me what you really love, and I'll tell you what's going on inside. What you love and what you hate reveals who you are. Our anxieties reveal our priorities. Okay, what do you worry about? I know we're going to reveal our hearts. I'm not asking you to tell me now, but what is it that you worry about? What is it that gets under your skin and just worries you? Is it money? Well, you know what? That's what you love. Because we don't worry about things we don't care about. Right? You know, we, we we don't get concerned about things that are of no value to us. We get concerned, we worry about things that are of value to us. Right? So your anxieties reveal um, <clears throat> what it is that's going on in your heart. Um, <clears throat> If you determine what a man worries about, then you determine what his treasures are. Because he worries about his treasures. He worries about the things that are important to him. Right? Our preoccupation reveals our priorities. Right? You know, When you come to the um, time management people, they will, t- they will tell you to do this. They will tell you to write down how you spend every quarter of an hour during the day. That seems like an absolutely... You know, <clears throat> incredible task, you know, to actually keep, keep track of what you do every quarter of an hour. And you really can't backtrack on it. You have to do, do it as it's happening because you forget so quickly, right? right? But be honest and write down what you're doing. Now, if you would do that for a week and bring it to me, I could tell you what your priorities are. Isn't that reasonable? Because we spend time on the things that are important to us. That's just the way it is. And you know, people say, "Oh well, I'm too busy." Yeah, you're too busy for some things, but you're not too busy for other things, because there's 24 hours in a day. And everybody gets their, their shot at it. Everybody gets their 24 hours in the, in the day, you know? <clears throat> and um, you spend the 24 hours. And typically you spend it on your priorities. What's important to you? Right, that, that's what you do when you're done. So, you know, your preoccupation reveals your priorities. Our anger reveals our priorities. You don't get angry and upset about things that don't matter. Right? You know, but if you did, people would be looking at you and saying, what's your problem? What is it that, what, what's in you that, that, you know, what's your issue? You get angry and upset about your priorities. Things that are really important to you make you angry when you know when you're not getting them, that is, those things make you angry. So, those things will actually reveal your anxieties, <clears throat> the things you worry about, uh, your preoccupations, and your anger will actually reveal to you what's important to you. Now, by the way, don't just hear this and say, Oh, yeah, that's interesting, and go on about your business. Actually, take some time to work it out take some time to actually work it out and see where you actually stand. What is it that bugs you? What is it that uh, gets you angry? What is it that you're preoccupied with? Because those things are the things uh, that are filling your heart, if you want to put it biblically. And what's supposed to be filling your heart? What's supposed to be filling your heart? Thou, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. Right? The thing that's supposed to be most important in your heart is your love for him. So that if you get anxious, it still wouldn't be right, but if you get anxious, it should be over the things of God. If you get preoccupied, it should be over the things of God. If you get angry, it will be over the things of God. By the way, why did Jesus get angry? On the occasion he got angry. Why did he get angry? Okay, they were defiling the temple. If My father's house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. His anger was over the father. Why? Because his preoccupation was the father. He was preoccupied with his father. So therefore, that's what what made him angry. Now, he never got anxious uh, about anything, but he was preoccupied. You know, <clears throat> uh, the guys will go looking. Where is he? Where is he? Everybody's looking for him. Where is he gone? What's he up to? I mean, this is ridiculous. The whole the whole city's out looking to find him, and he's gone. He's vanished. Oh, look, there he is over there. What's he doing? He's praying. He's spending time with his father. It was. <clears throat> By the way, can you imagine this? Can you imagine having the power to heal everybody you came in contact with? That'd be heady stuff, wouldn't it? That would be heady stuff. Now, you'd, be, you'd be in hot demand. He was in hot demand. But do you know that he thought it more important to go and spend time with his father than to heal people? That was his preoccupation. That was what was important to him. All the rest that he was doing, he was doing in obedience to the father. But what drove him was the father. And his love for the Father, his relationship with the Father. Remember, the guys come to him in John chapter 4. They've gone and got lunch, and he's talking to the woman at the well. And he says to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. See, the Father was his preoccupation. The Father was his food. The Father was worthy of giving up sleep over the Father. Listen, his relationship with the Father was the thing that drove his life. Now, it's supposed to be like that for us. And before you say, oh, I can't, you have the Holy Spirit within you to enable you to do, to be. You know, <clears throat> so what, what is it? What, what, what do your anxieties, preoccupations, and anger reveal about you? All right, <clears throat> loving God with all your heart. No one is ever apathetic. Every man is passionate about something. Right? Don't, don't we say, yeah, well, people are just apathetic today. I go down to Croke Park last Sunday. There weren't many apathetic people down there, were there? They were passionate, right? And what happens is we're all passionate about something. There's something that's exciting in this. We're not apathetic. We're just apathetic about certain things. Apathy is not something that that kind of spreads over our lives generally. I, I realise there can be sometimes when it does, <clears throat> but we're passionate about some things, right? <clears throat> A a God-exhilarated lover is extravagant, right? Now, what we're looking at is, you know, the passion that we so easily have for other things in the world, having that in relationship to God, and that makes us extravagant. Now, let me read you a couple of quotes. C.S. Lewis, again, he said this. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So you've got a child who's never been to the sea, doesn't know what the beach is and somebody says, you want to go to the beach? He says, no, I'm too busy playing in the mud. And he stays making mud pies not knowing how much fun he could have if he would just take up the offer and go to the beach. And the same is true for us. That what we do is we play around in the shallows because we don't really understand what we're being offered. What we're being offered is infinite joy. What we're being offered is a relationship that satisfies every need of our hearts and lives. But because we don't understand it, We're passionate about trifles and we miss the reality. Let me read you another one. This is Jonathan Edwards written over 100 years ago. Um, He said, We are nothing if we are not in earnest about our faith and if our wills and inclinations are not intensely exercised. The religious life contains things too great for us to be lukewarm. Isn't that a different kind of an angle on it? Let me finish what he says, though. We find that people exercise the affections in everything else but religion. When it comes to their worldly interests, their outward delights, their honor, their reputation, their natural relations, they have warm affection and ardent zeal. In these things, their hearts are tender and sensitive, easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned and much engrossed. They get deeply depressed at worldly losses and highly excited at worldly successes. But how insensible and unmoved are most men about the great things of another world? How dull, then, are their affections? Here, here their love is cold, their desires languid, their zeal low, and their gratitude small. How can they sit and hear of the infinite height, depth, length, and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of his gift of his infinitely dear Son, offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of men, and yet be so insensible and regardless? Can we suppose that the wise creator implanted such a faculty of affections to be occupied in this way? How can any Christian who believes the truth of these things not realize this? What's he saying? He's saying, listen, God made you for better things. God made you to be preoccupied with things much higher, much grander, much better than the world. God made you for better things. God made you for himself. And he made you so that you could enjoy greater things. And <clears throat> we miss it. We miss it. We miss the great things God. We settle for so much less. Now, the detriment of it is this, right? First of all, if we settle for so much less in our own lives, well, we just know much less. But what effect does that have on other people? Right, if somebody knows you're a Christian, to put it back in the in the terms of um, um, C.S. Lewis, and they sees you see you playing in the same mud pit as they're playing in, what happens to them? No difference. It's just the same. If they see you kind of grimacing and trying to go through it, and trying to make it happen, trying to be religious. What do they do? I don't want that. I do not do that. When they see authentic, passionate, loving relationship on your part between you and your God, they're drawn to it because that's exactly what they're missing in their lives. But it's got to be real. It can't be fake. There's no way. So <clears throat> a, God ex- a God-exhilarated lover is extravagant. That's just natural. When you got a love relationship going on, you're going to be extravagant. <clears throat> okay, um, let's look at some extravagant people. Um, Luke seven thirty-six through fifty. Pharisees desired him that he would eat with them. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat up in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. Right now, an alabaster box of ointment was probably uh, the equivalent of a year's wages. Right Now, a year's wage is a lot of money. It's your definitely rainy day money. It's probably pension. It's you know, it's what she's put aside. It's a lot of money, right? So, <clears throat> and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw, saw it, he spake with himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is uh, that toucheth him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to ask thee, somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. He owed, one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said unto I suppose he to whom thou forgavest most, he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned unto the woman, and he said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she had washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time that I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which were many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to him whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Okay. What does Jesus deduce from her extravagant sacrifice? What does he what does he what does he say about her? How does he know? What does he know about her? She was repenting. Okay. But that, that that's definitely there, but he, he actually says it there for us in the in, in, in the text. She loved, she loved much. She was extravagant. She loved much. Folks, is it possible to love much and not be extravagant? Now, don't, don't, it doesn't always have to be money. And by the way, extravagance with money is not the amount of money. Right? Don't get that in your head. Remember the widow's mite? She had a farthing. She gave the farthing. What did Jesus say? She gave more than they all. Right? What was he say? Because she, she gave all that she had. So it was more, it was more it was a, it, that was a greater extravagance for her than a million would have been for somebody else. Right? So understand. But is it possible to love and not be extravagant? No. You see, love drives us to do things that are extravagant. See, if we're not doing extravagant things, if there's no extravagance in our love for God, it's a very cold love. And while you may placate yourself and say, well, that's... Yeah, I'm doing okay. I read my Bible every day. The problem for you is other people don't see it like that. People around you say, hang on a minute, there's not much going on here. Did you ever see a couple that were together and you were wondering, there's not much going on between this pair. There's just not much going on here. I'm, I'm kind of concerned about the situation. You know, there's not... There's not much of a connection going on here. You know, people tell that about our relationship with God too. They look at our relationship with God and they say, hey, you know what, there's not much going on between them. And we're talking about being a God-loving example. Now listen, there is nothing worse than trying to fake this one. You can't fake it. It has to be real. But when it's not real, you have to recognize it and you have to look for it to be real. Okay. Mary's extravagant attention. Um, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now it came to pass as they, were, as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house and she had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Now, to your mind and to my mind, this is dreadful. She's leaving poor Martha to to, to work her guts out Preparing dinner, and she's just sitting at the Lord's feet. But why is she sitting at the Lord's feet? Because her love for Him requires that she be there. She's going to do another jar of ointment for the Lord as well. But her love for Him requires extravagant attention. And the problem is that extravagant attention can sometimes be. Uh, <clears throat> misunderstood you know when she actually takes and uh, and breaks the ointment, judas is going to be upset he's upset because what he's saying is listen that that, listen that money could have been could have been used to feed the poor and and me that's really what he was saying but but you know the extravagance can be misunderstood but what's happening here the lord is calling it right saying one thing is needful and she's chosen that part. The Lord says she got it right. It's more important to be sitting listening to me than to be cooking dinner. Anthony. I think you see, it can be in, in a human context, right? But I think in, in, in a God context, no. Right? now we can get hyped up in emotion but the kind of sacrificial love that we're talking about here you know that comes from a true heart that's 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 not something that, that that's done for self-gratification human 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 love may but in that relationship with God now is there the element of it that it pays yeah but that's not wrong listen you ought to enjoy God God is most honored when we enjoy him. We're supposed to enjoy him. It's not a case of us, you know, <clears throat> you know, you know, dry crackers. It's a relationship. And the reason you're giving is because you're loved. And you get drawn into this relationship because you're loved. But it's not a case of, you know, it's kind of just, <clears throat> it's just all about me. It's not all about me. It's It's my response to him in that case. But, you know, it's the one relationship in your life where you're never likely to overstep the mark. You know? That, that's the truth. But we're supposed to... Um, that extravagant attention. We'll, we'll ask some questions later on. But do you think we should give him extravagant attention? Would that be normal? Okay? David's extravagant praise. Look at Second um, Samuel 6, 13 through 15. I'll give you the background here. Um, they've tried to move the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Um, Uzzah, Uzzah touched it and died. So they, so they dropped the whole operation, and they went off to find out what they were doing wrong. And God showed them what to do. So this, this is the second time that they're moving the Ark, right? Um, 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Verse 13. This is the second time that they're moving the ark, right? And um, look at verse 13. And it was so that when they were bare, the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was geared with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord, with shouting and with the sound of trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart, right? She, said, she looked out the window, this is the king's wife, she looks out the window and she says, he's making a show of himself. Right? And every wife gets embarrassed when her husband's making a show of himself, right? And um, she looks at David, and because David's making a show of himself, she despised him in her heart. She misunderstood completely. By the way, it goes very badly for her uh, on the head of it, but she misunderstood completely. What was David doing? David was offering extravagant praise. He loves the Lord with all his heart. And he's dancing before the West. He's not rocking out. That's not what's happening here. He's dancing before the Lord. Uh, it's praise. And he's, um, <clears throat> what he's doing is he's being extra- extravagant about his praise. Now, Understand, Michel mis, misunderstood. People can misunderstand. People are not always going to get it. You know, <clears throat> when you're extravagant before the Lord, <clears throat> people are going to misunderstand. But it was true. It was real. It was extravagant praise. All <clears> right. <throat> Look at Paul's extravagant service. Look at Acts chapter twenty-one. verse 13. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be taken by the... uh, there, and he knows it. They've prophesied and told him that. And um, every stop along the way, uh, they're hanging on to him and telling him, don't go. Right? Uh, verse 12 and when when we heard these things both we and they of the place we sought him not to go up to Jerusalem then Paul answered what mean ye to weep and break mine heart for I am ready not only not to be bound only but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of for the name of the Lord Jesus what's Paul saying listen all all these people love Paul and they're trying to stop him from going up because they reckon he's going to get uh, martyred up there And what's he saying? Listen, it's God's plan for me. I'm going, and look, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die if that's what it takes. That's extravagant service, isn't it? Now, why would he do extravagant service? Because the Lord Jesus Christ wanted it, and he loved him. He was willing to sacrifice himself for the Lord Jesus Christ. He was willing to give himself completely. Now, here's what we're seeing in these pictures real love shows real love can't be hidden real love gets demonstrated now remember this love relationship begins in him we love him because he first loved us but it's real love you see isn't it true that Christianity today is kind of a pale reflection of what it ought to be it's kind of a limp lame thing isn't it true that so much of it is, is, is limp and lame by comparison to what we see in the scripture. And, and we're fed on this diet, you know, of baby food so that we all think, well, you know what, listen, I'm doing okay. I mean, we, we, we haven't gotten out of the ABC's class, the kindergarten class, the, 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 the infant's class. Because real love is powerful. It's extravagant doesn't leave you where it found you. Everything gets changed, gets turned upside down. You're different because of it. And we've got to see that, that, you know, Christianity is extravagant. It's extreme. Real Christianity is extreme. It's radical. It's not just, you know, you plot along in your life, you know, and you kind of, you you got your Christian badge now, and you plot along, and everything else is the same. No, no, no. This Christianity thing, Changes everything. Everything gets turned around because of Christianity. The extravagance of our God in giving his son to die for us. That's extravagant. Would you? Would you give your son? Not for anybody. Would you give your son for people that didn't care? He did. That's extravagant. Our extravagant love is just a, a reflection of that Extravagant love. Penetrating question. Who would want to be like us? Who looks at you and says, Oh, I wish I could be like that. Who would want to be like us? If we are not known to be God-loving believers by our obvious extravagance for the lover of our soul, why should those who follow us bother with him either? If it's not so real in your life that it shows in extravagant love, why would those that follow you want it? You know, there's <clears throat> there's a strange thing about Christianity. The strongest times for Christianity are times of persecution. Times when you might get killed for your faith. Now, how does that work? How does it work? Why do people want to become Christians more when Christians are being, getting, being persecuted than they do in times like this? How does that work? Pardon? It's real. They see the reality of your Christianity. And when they see the reality of your Christianity, they want it. There's not much real out there. There's not much out there to grab anyone's mind, heart, and soul, and attention. And when they see you, with something that grabs your mind, heart, soul, and attention. That impacts greatly. But if you stay in the baby class of Christianity and don't get to the extravagant part, listen, you're not there. They're not going to see it. You know, listen, you're patting yourself on the back because you go to church three times a week. And thinking, man, it's a sacrifice, but I do it anyway. What Sacrifice. You get a couple that are, that are getting married, and, and and the guy is saying, "Oh no, I've got to go out with her again tonight." <clears throat> you know, uh, ho- hello, problem here, right? Yeah, you know, you're going to have your devotions, and it's kind of, oh, I've got to get up and have my devotions now. You know, the match sticks in my eyes because I'm in the men's home, and I've got to have my devotions, right? Uh, <clears throat> hang on, something wrong. Now look, I understand not everybody's there. And you don't get there overnight. There's time involved in it. But you've got to look at the reality of, listen, if there's a love relationship there, it's fun. Now I know fun is the wrong word, but it's not hardship. And when that love relationship is there, it's contagious. It just touches other people. They want it. You can talk about the dry crackers till the cows come home. And what they'll say to you is, well, I, got, I can get dry crackers at my own church anytime. But when there's a love relationship there between you and him that they see, that they you know what, they're caught up, they're drawn into it. In revival times, the love relationship becomes uh, prominent for believers and so what happens is other people get drawn in. Other people get sucked into it. They want it. They want it that badly. Conclusion then. Those who have great impact for God are those who have great passion for him fueled by meditation upon his word. Passion's key word here. Great passion for him. It's got to be great passion. They're going to have an impact apart from passion. Passion is a key issue in it. All of us are masters at meditation. Did you know that? All of us are masters at meditation. We just choose the things we're going to meditate on very poorly. But we all meditate. There are things that you can't get your mind off that you meditate on that you just go round and around and around and around in your head and you're meditating on them. Anxiety is a form of meditation. Worrying is a form of meditation. just a long thing to be meditating on. So when it comes to this relationship with God, we can meditate. We just don't choose to. Let me read you something here from um, Jim Berg. He talks about meditating on sin. He says, Sin starts with a deception, often a twisted truth. We mull over and over in our mind the deception, considering the benefits of indulgence. Until we are so convinced of its virtues that we choose to embrace it, only then do we find that a hook is embedded in the lure. Understand then that we will meditate. We will meditate on truth, inflaming our desires for God, or we will meditate upon lies, inflaming our desires for things that will become idolatrous replacements for him. Meditation is not an option. We will meditate. Our only option is the choice of fuel for our reflection. That's good, isn't it? We meditate. We meditate. We either meditate on the wrong stuff or we meditate on the right stuff. But well, we do meditate. And choosing to meditate upon the things of God is choosing to actually run them over and over in your mind, to think them through, and to, <clears throat> to go over them. And to, 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 to take the word of God and to meditate on the things of God and meditate upon uh, the reality of who God is. But we meditate. We all meditate. You've got to meditate on the right things in order to end up in the right place. The next generation must be tempted with God. How are they going to be tempted with God? How are we going to tempt a generation of young people to want to walk with God? They have to see it, don't they? They have to see it in our homes, in our hearts, in our lives. They just have to see it. They have to see that reality. Let me read you a final thing and then we'll, then we'll go to prayer, right? Uh, <clears throat> the badge speaks. A dad who drives faster than the speed limit says something to his child. What does he say to his child? Fine. Okay. He's saying to his child it's okay to break the speed limit. It's okay to break the speed limit. Right? <clears throat> um, what's he saying about himself? Fine. He's above the, the law. He's inconsistent. Because right? he tells the kid, you do what I tell you but I don't do what I'm told. Now, does that speak to the kid? Yeah. You know, you know, those little kids in your home, they listen, they have this this criteria that they clock up all the time. They say, okay, yeah, oh, okay, so that, 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 that and that that equals this, and they, they'll they check, check mark it, right? um <clears throat> He skews the boy's view of his father. A dad who wears a police badge and breaks the speed limit when off duty says something to his child about the entire realm of law enforcement. He skews the boy's view of everything. The dad represents his badge. Sometimes we wonder why children of Christians go bad. Perhaps because of our failure to wear the badge. Because of our failure to actually do what we said We really believed in the home, in the church. We failed to actually be it. What we're doing is we're saying to them this and this and this and this and this. But then we're living it differently. Now, look, the reality is for us that it's a stench for us to live half-hearted Christian lives. It's the stench in the nostrils of God and the stench in the nostrils of man. Half hearted Christianity is worse than no Christianity very often. The impact is so deadening. It's a killer. There's got to be a real, living Christianity that moves, that you're caught up in that relationship, that you walk with Him, that you know Him. It's not an optional. You know, it's not something you know <clears throat> you, you, you can talk about as being for some people and not for you. It's listen, not to have it is deadening. Now the Lord Jesus Christ died so that we could have we could be set free from hell. Hallelujah, amen. But he died to break the power of sin in our lives. And if we were to take it deep enough, what we see is he died to enable us to love the Father like He does. Now, if Romans chapter 6 talks about us being free from sin and it clearly does and God tells us he wants us to love him then it's a sin not to love him. Do you know Romans chapter 6 covers this as well? That we can have this love relationship with him. What we have to do is we have to put away all the half-hearted love that we see around us and recognize, no, This needs to be the real deal. And we have to go all the way in this thing. We have to overcome the obstacles of people that have modeled it wrong for us and we have to go all the way to a love relationship that's real, that's vibrant, that's passionate. Not fake, not put on, it won't work. But we have to go all the way. And when we go all the way with this thing, what we're going to find is that we're the God-loving example we long to be. And we're going to find that other people are greatly influenced and moved by it. Now, <clears throat> revival will do that for you. But you know what? You can have revival tonight in your own heart. If you have to deal with sin and tell Him you want this, God will work it out in you. God will do it. That's Bible prayer. Father in heaven, would you bless your people? And Lord, would you let us see the reality of this relationship that's essential to our Christianity? And all blessed spirit of the living God, Lord, where we failed, would you forgive? And Lord, for those that are looking at the situation and saying it's not possible, oh Lord, would you blow away that unbelief, that lack of faith, Lord, and have them come to sweetly trust you, Lord, for it. Oh, and blessed Spirit of the living God, would you hover over us? Would you cover us with your love? And would you cover us with your presence and with your power? And, oh, Lord, may we be a church that loves you with passion. And may the world see and know, and may our children see and know, and, Lord, may there be uh, a move so great, Lord, that it affects and draws others in. And, Lord, to you be the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen.